Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today, riding once again with my buddy, Mr. Robert Deagle. How are you doing, buddy? Good, very good. Uh, I wanted to ask, do you go by Deagle still, or do you want to go by Diggle now, or some combination of the two? So the, my name is pronounced Deagle. That is actually how you pronounce it. I just spoke. Oh, okay. I, yeah. So like, okay, so here's a brief history of the confusion about my last name. So Deagle is originally a German last name. The pronunciation would be Deagle. I, I think that's how you pronounce it. But that, that's how my grandpa always pronounced it. He always pronounced it as Deagle. He said, we're the Deagles. Despite the fact that our specific spelling of the last name is an anglicized version of the last name. So D-I-G-G-L-E. So that you would, you would phonetically pronounce it Diggle, of course, right? Mm-hmm. But Deagle would be like, I don't know, that's how my grandpa always pronounced it. And I looked it up and D-E-G-L-E, I believe that means valley in German or something like that. I don't know. I don't, I don't speak German, <laughs> but like, that's how my grandpa always pronounced it. it. It means valley in some language, actually. I believe it's German. But anyway, yeah. So there's many versions of the name. Like there's a French version of the name. I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce that. It's, <laughs> it's D-A-I-G-L-E. Uh, and there's, there's a bunch of other different versions. So yeah, I mean, I've talked before about like why I originally spelled it D-E-G-L-E, uh, on social media platforms. I just, I wanted to distance my academic, like what I thought was going to be my actual career in philosophy from jujitsu. Like I wanted a distance between those things. So like, yeah, dude, I, I don't blame you. I, I really put a lot of thought into this beforehand before I started doing this podcast. Uh, I mean, people have commented on this before that prior to this podcast, I was just a ghost on the internet. I had no social media, no anything. And that was very deliberate. And I was debating when I did this, do I want to actually use my real name? And and I kind of realized probably similar to you that like at some point you're deep enough in the rabbit hole now that it's unrealistic. You're ever going (laughs) to get out of it. And also at this point in time, anyone who, even if I went by a pseudonym, everyone would be able to find out my real name. So YOLO, right? Just go with it. Yeah. So in hindsight, I I didn't realize how deep I was going to go with this. And like, I would have just spelled it normally. That's why in my bio, I spell it correctly now because it's like, ah, I see. yeah. If you look at my Instagram bio, I, I have the D-E-G-L-E as like a nickname, right? Like, yeah. But anyway. 
Yeah. Well, now today, though, today, I think we actually will make use of your philosophical expertise because, you know, what I love to do on this podcast is I like to bring on, in my opinion, the most innovative and interesting minds in the sport and totally waste everyone's time with those people. So <laughs> what I, what a sane and normal person would do is sit down with you and talk about arm saddles or leg locks or something. But fuck it. We're talking about the Star Wars prequels. So uh, just a disclaimer in advance to anyone out there. Feel free to turn the episode off. <laughs> if you want, but I think you will regret it because I think this is going to be quite a ride. So with that said, Rob, we've been talking about this for some time. Why don't you give me the the TLDR here, your your opening statement about the prequels? Because I know one of the things that um, that you are quite well known for is being a strong prequels advocate. And I'd love to dig into this a bit. And to the listeners, I, I will try to somehow make this about jujitsu, but I can't promise it. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I don't know how we're going <laughs> to work that in, but I guess we could try at some point. Um, yeah, so like basically like, I think the prequels are super, super underrated. Um, and I'm going to make that claim using a, a series of different points. Um, the first, like, let me just talk about like my history with the prequels. You got to keep in mind, like, so I was, I think I was 10. I'm looking it up right now. I was, I was seven years old when the Phantom Menace came out. Like, yeah, I had just turned seven when The Phantom Menace came out. And I remember being in the theaters. Well, I, I will never forget this thought. I was watching, you know, the, the battle on Naboo between the battle droids and the Gungans. And I had the distinct thought, I can't believe movies can be this good. Like, I had seen movies in the theater before. This wasn't my first, like, theatrical movie, right? But I, there was something about Star Wars that was just so fucking good. And I had already seen the um, the original trilogy on VHS. I'd seen it on, like, TV. Like, my earliest memories of the original trilogy are the special edition that George Lucas made where he, like, put in, like, new scenes and stuff. And I... I my earliest memories of that are on TV reruns. And I thought that was awesome. Like, I loved that, too. Um, but seeing it in the theater as a little kid was like, it fucking blew my mind. And also, like, I really, really like Jake Lloyd's Anakin Skywalker. I know a lot of people, like, make fun of him. In fact, like, people have like, ruined that poor guy's life over it, which is so... Oh, God. Yeah, it's so over the top. He's a fucking child actor. But, like, bro, I think he did a really good job. As a little kid, I I was like enthralled by by his character. I you know, of course the acting is kind of silly, but like it's that's always been the case in Star Wars. It's always kind of silly acting. I I really felt connected to that character. And the arc that we see Anakin Skywalker go through, I think is a really really like like a genuinely deep arc in a lot of ways like people forget that so george lucas actually never directed the empire strikes back and return of the jedi he was he directed a new hope uh, episode four uh he, he was the uh and he didn't write the scripts for all of them either he was the uh i believe the executive producer for all of them and of course the overall vision was his like though he was the true auteur of star wars if you will but the prequels he directed all three he wrote all three and all three were like, that was his vision. So the prequels truly are like the complete vision of George Lucas. You, 
and and, and we can address on the on the podcast. Of course, there are like a, are a lot of ways you can criticize the prequels, and they're all valid. And I'm not going to argue that they're not. But at the end of the day, I will always love the prequels, and a big part of why is I always come back to that memory. Being a little kid, watching Star Wars Episode One, and just like fucking feeling like, holy shit, this is unreal how good this is. Yeah, for me, my my story is similar to yours. I mean, we're kind of in a similar age range. And I remember being in school and my dad, through his job, managed to luck into getting a pair of advanced screening tickets to The Phantom Menace. And so I was super duper excited. He took me. And I was not a hardcore Star Wars fan going into that, like you. I mean, I'd seen the movies. I'd seen them on TV reruns. Uh, I was too young to go and see the originals in theaters. And I thought they were fine, but I didn't have the passionate love of them that everyone else did. And I remember going into the sequel, and I remember leading up to episode one, everyone being incredibly excited going into it. And almost the day after Everyone was just dumping all over it. And a lot of what you're saying here, I think, illustrates an interesting thing about Star Wars as a whole, which is, for better or worse, there's a lot of bandwagoning about Star Wars movies. I mean, you could argue that the original movies were, they're more beloved than they were actually good. I mean, I'm not saying they're bad, but the amount of love that people retroactively have for those is insane. And I would also argue that the prequels, they weren't perfect. At the time, I certainly didn't love the first two. Um, but it, the more that time passes and the more I can look back on them with retrospect, and especially after watching the new trilogy, the more I appreciate what the prequels were trying to do, even if there were some misses. But I do feel, like you said, that there was a almost an irrational level of, of hate around the prequels, it became popular to hate them. And the kid, for example, who played Anakin, I mean, he did a totally fine job. The, the problems that people have with that movie should not be about his performance. It should be about if the script. If people don't like where the movie went, that has nothing to do with the kid whose performance was totally fine. And I think that's a really good example of kind of like the misplaced hatred if you're going after a kid for a perfectly serviceable performance, because he did nothing wrong, right? His, his performance was fine. He was actually, you could argue that having a kid in the movie made it kind of feel like a kid's show, and I know that's a criticism of it, but his performance in that role was totally fine, and I don't think you can reasonably criticize it. Yeah, and so like, I'm so I want to be clear also, I think the criticisms are valid, but I'm actually going to push back on literally every single one of them and say that the script is great, everything is great, the effects are great, like, <laughs> because it's like, and, and the reason why I'm going to say it is I'm not going to make the argument that like the prequels are like Citizen Kane or something, but like, I also don't want them to be that. Like all of the <laughs> ridiculous things in them, I genuinely love. Like, you know, the fucking weird diner that Obi-Wan Kenobi goes to. It's so good. <laughs> like, like, of course you can criticize it and call it stupid and silly, but like, I feel like the people that say it is like, where have you been? Like in the original trilogy, we had a walking dog who talked like, you know what I mean? Like, like yes. Star Wars has always been ridiculous. But so, so you bring up an interesting point of Star Wars fans have a deep and like really intense love for the series that seems almost like irrational, right? Like they fucking take it so seriously. And I think the reason is that Star Wars is one of those rare film series that taps into mythological symbols and like really deep. So something I want to argue on the podcast is like, 
George Lucas is honestly a, I would consider him a genius. Like he is very good at crafting mythological narratives that I think tap into like really deep elements of the human experience. Uh, and like, obviously there's silly stuff in the movies, but I think he really is very in tune with like deep mythological narratives that, um, we see throughout history. So like, um, the original trilogy was really like it, it hit a generation with such power because it had those narratives running through it. Um, you know, like the classic story of like the young boy who goes on an adventure. It's the hero's journey, right? The, the journey of a thousand, uh, faces, I think was the, yeah, the, yeah. the book, right? Yeah. Um, there, this is a book of like, uh, anthrop- anthropology where I forget the, do you remember the, the author's name? He's, it's very famous. It, the book is called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Off the top of my head, I don't remember the author, but it's, it's quite famous and it's been basically documented that much of the structuring of the Star Wars movies was directly based off of the lessons from that book. Yeah, and the the core lessons of that book are that various mythological arcs throughout history are um, they're structurally interrelated, right? You've got the young young adventurer who he has a he, he rejects the journey originally, but then something compels him to go on a journey. He has a wise old mentor, there's villains he has to overcome, and eventually he returns from the journey and he gains new insight and wisdom that you know he can teach to maybe the next generation and he becomes the next wise man. So I think that the main one one of the big reasons I think that people who love the original trilogy and grew up with the original trilogy initially pushed back on the prequels is that th- there's two reasons. I think there's the the silly elements, but I don't really think that's a... I, I think that's what people will tell you they don't like, but I don't actually think deep down that's what bothers them. Because if that was the case, the silly elements in the original trilogy would be discussed just as much, right? You have almost... Like, the, the ridiculous, like, bat character in the Moss Eisley Cantina, you know, like, the, the bug thing, right? There's so many silly things in the original trilogy, right? But people don't talk about that because they love that mythological narrative. The difference is the prequels are less about the mythological narrative that is still present, but it's more to do with a Shakespearean drama. It's, it's the original trilogy is like the journey, the, the hero with a thousand faces. Whereas the prequel trilogy is a Shakespearean tragedy, right? Like Macbeth. I think it's, in fact, you could argue very similar in many respects to Macbeth. And like, there are a lot of socio-political elements present in the prequels that really aren't there in the originals. And a lot of people have like criticized that. They're like, oh, this is Star Wars. We don't need politics and sociology and th- these things, right? Like, so for instance, the villain of the, the first prequel movie, The Phantom Menace, the, you know, one, one of the main villains at least is the Trade Federation. You know, that sounds so political and like kind of, you know, like, t- t- the argument I've heard before is that to a kid that's boring. Well, I, it didn't bother me as a kid. I'll say that. So, but like, I think the thing is, is like that political element is very important to the story of Anakin Skywalker. And that, that story adds a lot to the original trilogy. So let, let's talk about the rise and fall of Anakin Skywalker. And then we can talk about how the political elements have an impact on that. 
So sure. Go for it. Go for it. Go yeah. For it. So, so Anakin Skywalker starts off, right? He's a slave. He's an actual literal slave, you know, and it's, it's a situation where there isn't much hope. And then he, he sees these, you know, uh, these foreigners from off world who come to Tatooine and there's this beautiful girl and there's this wise man. And he, he immediately, immediately he's drawn to both of them, obviously for different reasons. He feels something emotional about the girl and he's drawn to this wise man, Qui-Gon, who is not a slave and who clearly has, you know, wisdom and strength and freedom. And, and what kind of kid in that situation wouldn't feel drawn? to those sorts of people. And Qui-Gon sees, Qui-Gon is the Jedi Master who sees value in Anakin. Qui-Gon is a very important character to the prequels. I think the biggest mistake the prequels make is that they don't have more of Qui-Gon. He, man, it's, it's like he's such a central character. Qui-Gon sees in the young Anakin Skywalker the potential to fulfill the prophecy. The prophecy is that there will be a young man, or I, I should say young man, a, a person born in the Star Wars galaxy who will bring balance to the Force by defeating the dark side, right? So we have to understand some elements of the, the mythology of the Force for this to make sense. The Force for the Jedi is understood as being a sort of, a sort of a element in the galaxy that can be good or it can be corrupted by the dark side. So to say, it's, it's almost like if you have a, a physical organism and you are, you become sick, that disease is similar to what the dark side is to the force. So people oftentimes think bringing balance to the force means having an equal degree of light and darkness. That's not the way the force works. The dark side of the force is a literal disease. It's not good. You don't need any dark side for there to be balance in the force. To bring balance to the force is like curing an illness in a body. It's to eliminate the illness, right? So Anakin's destiny is to eliminate the the Sith, right? The dark side of the force. That prophecy is at the time of Star Wars Episode One. it's considered not very serious. The, the Jedi prophecies are not considered very serious. So the Jedi have become deeply embroiled in Republic politics. Historically, they haven't invo- involved themselves in politics, but as the many generations have gone on where there have been no Sith and there have been no serious dark side opponents, they've become complacent and deeply political. Qui-Gon Jinn wants to push back on that. Qui-Gon Jinn was trained by Count Dooku, who, uh, who was a, who, it becomes a Sith Lord eventually. Count Dooku was very skeptical of the degree to which the Jedi were becoming involved with politics. So the philosophy of Count Dooku, Count Dooku eventually was corrupted by the dark side, but he saw something bad in the Jedi that he imparted into Qui-Gon before he, um, before he eventually left the Jedi Order and then became corrupted by the dark side. He, he imparted this idea of the living force. The living force is this idea that the force is not something we should be using to 
control the galaxy, which is what the Jedi are doing in terms of their political agendas, right? We can even, like, we can understand the Jedi's political agendas. They want to maintain the Republic as a democratic system. There's something positive about that, of course, but the, the problem comes into play when they stop respecting the Force as something that can potentially guide their actions and rather they think they control the force. So like this is this is a, a callback to ancient Taoist philosophers who oftentimes uh, debated other ancient Chinese philosophers on this very topic. So for instance the the famous Taoist philosopher Zhuangzhou, he's one of my favorite philosophers. He, he in in the the only book we have of his it's called the Zhuangzhou. He consistently criticizes other Chinese schools of philosophy for believing that they can control nature rather than thinking that they are at the will of nature. So Qui-Gon, in a sense, believes that the most important ethical standard that we have to have above all else is an acceptance of the fact that we are at the will of the force rather than the force being something we can use to just get what we want, right? Do Do you understand the distinction there? Yeah, I think so. And you're touching on one of the interesting distinctions, I'd say, between the uh, the first trilogy and the second. And I think this is probably part of the reason why people were so hard on the prequels uh, is because they had expectations. They basically wanted to relive exactly what they felt when they saw the first movies. But the first movies are quite different. The first movies are very much um, a, a pretty much a standard space cowboy adventure, right? I mean, what you're talking about is you're talking about a ragtag group of seemingly random and unrelated heroes who begrudgingly band together to fight off the big bad, right? It's the plot of every role-playing video game I've ever played. Whereas in the prequels, like you said, right out of the gate within the first five minutes, you've got Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon like sitting at a table at like a trade dispute or something. It's a completely different feel. And there is really no big bad. I mean, there is, but the the person that it, that you would consider to be like the big bad isn't really the big bad in this movie is actually Anakin and the story of his fall from grace is the thing that makes it interesting so i kind of feel like maybe the reason why people were so hard on these movies is because they just weren't what people expected and the, the way that the force is handled to your point is a very similar thing in the original movies the force was never really explained. It was just this mystical idea. It was kind of an excuse to give people superpowers, and but it was never really dug into. Other than that, there was clearly a philosophical aspect around it. In the second movie, they tried to kind of ground it in science, and you've got midichlorians and stuff like that. And I know a lot of people criticize those movies because that's not what they wanted, right? They, they didn't want people to try to turn this into a biological thing. They wanted the force to be like a mystical power. And I think that might be part of the reason why people often poo-poo on the prequels is just because there were revelations there that people didn't want out of Star Wars. Right. Well, yeah, but man, we've we've only scratched the surface. We have much, <laughs> we have much more to go. But like, I, so so I'll, let's take a brief aside on the topic of midi chlorians, and I'll just I'll just give my thoughts on it. Who gives a shit? Like what? Like it's such a dumb criticism. Well, it makes the force not mystical. That's like saying that if like a scientist explains gravity to you that you suddenly like understand all the deep mysteries of like physics like what are you fucking talking about like like there's a great quote by Wittgenstein where he said uh at the base of all uh knowledge comes faith 
And it's like, at the end of the day, like we don't really understand why certain, we have to make certain base assumptions about like anything in order to proceed and gain scientific knowledge. So the idea that because we're given some sort of scientific explanation about the force that makes it not mystical. I, 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 that's just, it just never rung true with me. It never even remotely bothered me because I always understood like, okay, science and faith and mysticism and, you know, scientific knowledge, these things can oftentimes coexist completely harmoniously. So yeah, I've never, I've never really given a shit about that. Me neither. It certainly didn't bother me at the time. I never thought twice about it. I mean, there's that scene where Qui-Gon explains the midichlorians thing, and then it really never comes up again, ever, in the Star Wars movies. I could see there being a big complaint about that if the existence of midichlorians completely changed the movie into something that it wasn't. But really, it's just an aside. There's a, a very, very quick scene where they explain this, and then it is, as far as I can recall, never referenced again. So I don't really feel like it materially changed the movie. I, get, I know that a lot of people don't like that, and I can kind of, to some extent, understand why, but I agree with you. I, at the time, it never even occurred to me to be upset about that. It wasn't until I heard people complaining about it after the fact that it even occurred to me that someone might get upset about something like that ruining the movie. Yeah. Well, yeah. Anyway, let's keep moving forward with the, the, <laughs> the main the main point. So just to recap, the philosophy of Qui-Gon is the philosophy of the living force, which has as its basis the idea that we have to come to understand the force, but then accept the will of the force. That's very different than what the Jedi are doing. The Jedi are trying to very deliberately. So for instance, like Yoda sees into the future. He's trying, he's trying to make, he's trying to change his surroundings more so than maybe they should be, right? We're going to, we're going to get there. I'm going to make the argument that ultimately Qui-Gon is the most ethical Jedi. And had he lived, Anakin would not have fallen to the dark side. Um, but. Yeah, anyway, so basically, and, and I think that this has like a lot of like really interesting like ethical implications as well for like real life and stuff, right? So anyway, so obviously Qui-Gon doesn't live. He gets killed by Darth Maul in episode one. Spoiler for a 20-year-old movie, by the way, if anyone gives a shit. <laughs> We're going to spoil the shit out of those 20-year-old movies, so just FYI. Yeah, if you haven't seen... I mean, if you haven't seen these movies, please go fucking watch them and then come back. Like, don't... Please, don't let me talking about it, like, uh, spoil it if you haven't seen it, but yeah. It still blows my mind that we actually will probably be sending this podcast out to a lot of people who are so young that... They didn't grow up with those movies and they might not have ever seen them. It just makes me realize how old I'm getting. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> Same. <laughs> um, but yeah. So anyway. Okay. So the Jedi Council actually rejected Anakin as a Jedi apprentice because so like let's think about like what the Jedi actually do. It's actually kind of creepy if you think about it. It's so fundamentally different than what Qui-Gon did with Anakin. Most Jedi apprentices are fucking two years old when they come to the temple. So they are adopted from across the galaxy. It's not through like force, no pun intended, that they're, they're taken. Like people will willingly give up their children to go to the Jedi, but I've never actually understood in universe why they would. Like it seems like, why would I give my child up to this weird religious cult? Like, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not sure. Um, but like, 
for if you're like really poor or something, and sometimes Jedi do leave. Um, and there are exceptions where some Jedi are trained later in life. So Ki-Adi Mundi, that's the Syrian Jedi master with the really big head, you know, like the cone head Jedi, like that guy, he didn't become a Jedi until he was 18, but there was a specific reason. I forget in universe why that was the case, but anyway, it doesn't matter. Most Jedi are trained from like two years old and on. Um, it's considered important because they want to essentially indoctrinate you into their cult <laughs> like basically right like yeah they, they don't want you to have any attachments to the outside world that's the, the they're fearful of that uh hold on one second i left a gap there because i think my chinese is here oh oh no worries you want to take a pause uh he should be like right around the he should be literally right around the corner yeah one second but but let's keep this rolling because i do um Fuck, man. And there's like, if, if people really understand the deep narrative thread, it's so, it's so good, actually. It's so, and I really want to make this philosophical argument about like the living force and like ethics and like this, I, how deeply brilliant I think George Lucas is. It's so good. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think people have retroactively kind of forgotten how brilliant Lucas is. I mean, you if you don't like the prequels, fine. Then you don't like the prequels. But this is the guy who created Indiana Jones. He created Star Wars. He created Industrial Light and Magic. He created LucasArts, uh, made some incredible video games back in the day. This guy has a, has a pedigree, right? Yeah. I mean... Uh, one second, sorry. I think he's right outside. One, just give me one second. Sorry, man. Okay. Hold on. Okay, so I got my Chinese food and I'm back. <laughs> Should keep that in the podcast. <laughs> anyway, so so like, uh, all right, we'll just. Do you want to just keep going with the? Yeah, yeah. We were talking about the uh, basically how George Lucas has sort of been retroactively underrated. Yeah, um, and I want to. So I, I want to continue with this thread of. Uh, Qui-Gon and Anakin because uh, and the the living force versus like what the Jedi were more into uh, which is by the way what the Jedi are more into is called the cosmic force so you've got the living force versus the cosmic force these are two different philosophical approaches we can take towards the force and they're kind of modeled off of ancient Chinese philosophical schools the living the living force is more like Taoism and the uh, cosmic force is more like uh, you could say maybe like legalism or maybe even Moism I'm I'm not sure exactly. I, th- I think you could make that argument. But anyway. I didn't know there were like different flavors of the force, so to speak. I didn't realize that they had uh, subdivided it that way. Yes. Well, lots of nerds with too much free time uh, <laughs> have done this. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, including myself. And uh, but it's all from George Lucas. Like it all comes from him. Like the living, the living force is mentioned in Star Wars Episode One. You know what I mean? But anyway, so. The Jedi Council doesn't take, you know, the young Padawan older than the age of two on average because they've found that if you train a Jedi beyond that age, they have too many attachments and attachments lead to pain, pain leads to suffering, suffering leads to anger, anger leads to hate, hate leads to fear, blah, blah, whatever. I probably got that wrong, but you get the point, right? Like it leads to the dark side, right? There's a specific thing Yoda says, right? So, like, I've always thought it was funny, by the way, getting a little bit off topic, but I've always thought it funny how in episode three, Anakin's like, I'm having these horrifying visions of people I love dying. What should I do, Yoda? And Yoda's like, get over it, Anakin. But anyway, (laughs) like, (laughs) so, like, anyway, um, so, like, uh, 
the Jedi Council doesn't want to train him. And Qui-Gon, he's like gung-ho because he sees, Qui-Gon sees that this is the prophecy. This young boy must be trained in the ways of the Force. And he sees potential in him that no one else sees. Whereas the Jedi, they take a more conservative approach. They're fearful. They're scared. They they worry that if this young boy is trained, he will lead to the dark side. And ultimately, their fears are proven correct. But I think also Qui-Gon's... I think Qui-Gon is ultimately proven correct. And I'll make that point later in the podcast. So like... And I think we can ex- express this ultimately as Qui-Gon, his, the deepest thing he feels is... Is a he is willing to risk some really bad things happening because he sees value in this young boy. Whereas the Jedi, they're too scared of it. They are pushing back against what Qui-Gon sees as the will of the force. The will of the force is that this young boy will bring balance to the force. And ultimately he does, because the sequels are not canon. So <laughs> we'll get to that. <laughs> but like, so Qui-Gon dies. Obi-Wan straight up tells the Jedi Council, look, Qui-Gon's dream, so to speak, was to train this young boy. I'm going to train this young boy. And Obi-Wan was just an apprentice. He's not quite ready to be a master yet. He went from being an apprentice, he went from being a Padawan to immediately being a master. He's a little bit over his head. Obi-Wan does a good job, but he's not the right master for Anakin. Obi-Wan is very by the rules. He's very much a cosmic force type of Jedi, right? He He's more like stiff and conservative. Not so much like, I'm not saying like politically, like it's more so like in his his views towards life. He's, he's more risk averse. Qui-Gon is a bit more willing to take risks if that means that he can, he can help others or he can live according to the will of the force. Like Qui-Gon is very willing to help others. So if you remember in episode one with Jar Jar Binks, the whole point of Jar Jar Binks is not to just be this dumb, annoying character, even though like a lot of people think he is. And you know, that's fair. If you find him annoying, you find him annoying. But the point of Jar Jar Binks is to show that Qui-Gon can see value in even the strangest creatures. Obi-Wan is like, I, why do I feel like we've picked up another useless life form? You know, and Qui-Gon's like, I don't remember what he says, but basically he's like, fuck off, Obi-Wan. Shut the Can fuck you up. imagine saying something like that to another human being? Like, that's uh, that's not good. That's not a good way to look at other people. <laughs> yeah, man. J- Jar Jar, he's a sentient living being, you fucking dickhead. Holy shit. <laughs> Well, here's the thing, right? I mean, look, if you think Jar Jar is silly and you don't like Jar Jar and you think he's annoying, okay, fair enough. If you think he ruined the whole movie for you, I mean, I that's maybe going a bit excessive, but I know some people feel that way. Fair enough, though. But what I find weird is it is weird to me that people will look back so fondly on characters like Jabba the Hutt and C-3PO and be totally cool with ridiculous characters like this, but then Jar Jar just is just the worst thing in the world. And that's, I think, an example, again, of where people, when they look back at the original three, they have maybe a rose-colored glasses on in terms of what those movies really were and what those movies actually intended to say. Because those original movies were campy. They were really, really campy. That's always been part of Star Wars. And I don't think that's a bad thing, right? I don't mind if something is campy and silly. Real life is campy and silly. Um, but I think that Jar Jar, again, I can't believe I'm defending Jar Jar Binks, but like 
Jar Jar almost derailed the entire tr- uh, second trilogy by himself due to the negative reaction. I mean, I don't know if it was Lucas's plan to write Jar Jar out, but you rarely saw him again in the trilogy. And I did feel like that reaction. I didn't like the character myself, but I, I mean, that was making like front page news around the world, how much people hated this character. I thought that was a little bit much. Well, it's, it's interesting that you say he derailed the series because if, you know the inner workings of Republic politics. Jar Jar also derailed the Republic. So, <laughs> did he? <laughs> yes, <laughs> this I do not know. Without Jar Jar Binks, there would have been no Empire. So he's the entire reason the Empire <laughs> succeeded. So, like, <laughs> okay, maybe people were right to hate him. Then I guess that's actually a good point. <laughs> Canonically, in universe, Jar Jar Binks' ultimate fate is that he becomes a hobo who begs for money. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. Poor guy. Yeah, that's his canonical fate. Uh, but anyway, so, um, so anyway, Obi-Wan agrees to train Anakin. Episode two comes around. Anakin has this giant boner for Padme. I don't blame the guy, but it's a little creepy. You know, if you look look at those early scenes. Yeah. Yeah. Pretend it's not Hayden Christensen, this like extremely good looking guy. It's going to, those scenes are way creepier, right? Like, like this, this regular looking dude versus this like super male model looking dude, right? Yeah. Yeah. This is something that I, I mean, I'm sure we'll get into this, but this is a criticism that I find a hard time defending against, which is the relationship between Padme and Anakin. I just feel like the, the choice of casting, I, I agree with the people who say that there was just missing chemistry there between Natalie Portman and Hayden Christensen. I just didn't feel it. And some of those scenes, especially in the second movie, which I feel like out of the prequel trilogy, I think the second was the weakest by quite a bit, but I felt like their relationship was just, oh, it was weird and awkward. And I think that just comes down to casting more than anything. Yeah. I, well, okay. I don't agree on either account. I think, I, I don't think there's any weakest movie. They're all perfect tens. Um, but the, uh, really, I think they're all, they, they, they are flawless in my opinion. They work wow. perfectly for what they're trying to do. And I also think that they're cast perfectly. Hayden Christensen is playing an angsty, horny teenager. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, you're probably, you're right. This dude has never been late. He's never even like kissed a girl. His behavior makes complete <laughs> sense. Like, you know what I mean? Like, he's like essentially like, imagine when, think back to when you were like, he's not 15, but like, you think about like when you were like, you know, before you'd ever like done anything with a girl or a member of whatever sex you're attracted to, right? Like, you were probably the most awkward motherfucker ever, right? (laughs) You had no sense for social boundaries or like how to like behave with them. That's Hayden Christensen. He does an amazing job. That is an amazing acting performance. And Natalie Portman, as Padme, does an amazing job playing this, like, look, she's into him. But it probably just feels weird because she remembers him when he was a little kid. <laughs> it felt weird to me because I remembered him when he was a little kid. I mean, this is this is one of the weird things about the the movies, right, is the episode one and episode two did not come out that far apart from each other, right? So... When we saw episode two, it wasn't that long ago that most people had seen The Phantom Menace. And it's really weird when you're watching The Phantom Menace and it kind of feels almost like a happy-go-lucky kids movie in the scenes where Anakin's around. And you've got this 
clearly it's a child talking to Natalie Portman. And then in the second movie, it's not a child anymore. It's Hayden Christensen. But Natalie Portman looks like exactly the same. And in my mind, it's like, okay, this is weird because just a while ago, it sure felt like she was a grown up and he was a kid. I know that actually their age difference isn't supposed to be that extreme. But just because we had just seen The Phantom Menace, it did feel like, oh, boy, something really weird is going on here. Well, I believe she's only like two or three years older than him. I know that that's what's crazy <laughs> because in the first movie, she looks like she's like 15 years older than him. <laughs> yeah. And then he somehow catches up. It's just one of those things that, you know, I guess you just got to like. It's it's just cinema, right? I guess you just kind of have to accept that it's a side effect of the casting. Yeah. Got to just chalk it up to the will of the force, guys. Anyway, so moving <laughs> on. <laughs> so like um, there's a lot of good stuff in episode two, but I, I kind of want to get to the main thematic point, if you will, which is yeah, that. Obviously, we know Anakin Padme full in love. Like, okay, just just a side note. The Jedi Council did such a hilariously bad job of keeping them from falling in love. So they were like, okay, Anakin was a young slave boy. And this was like probably the first like really attractive like off-world planet person he ever saw. He thought she was a literal angel when he first saw her. And, And then they're like, okay. All right, someone's got to protect Padme in isolation and go on scenic picnics with her and sit <laughs> <laughs> and sit by the fire like a like a like a nice fireside romantic getaway. You know, like that. Th- those scenes were actually shot in like beautiful northern Italy, like pe- where people go on like their honeymoons and stuff, right? So they're like, all right, let's send a young boy with a pre-existing history with this girl who clearly has a massive bone for her and already has abandonment issues from uh, his mother. Not abandonment issues but like um, his mother didn't abandon him but rather he was, he was taken from her, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it's like, oh, I forgot to say this by the way. I wanted to mention this. I, I think a central difference from what Qui-Gon was doing with Anakin and what the Jedi are doing with the average Padawan they take on is that Qui-Gon asks Anakin if he wants to come. He includes Anakin as he takes his consent before he does this with him. He says, listen, it's not going to be easy. The path of a Jedi is very hard. But what I can promise you is that I will turn you into a Jedi and you will have a better life than what you have now. Whereas a two-year-old can't consent to that, right? Like when the Jedi take your average two-year-old, they're not thinking about the well-being of that child per se. They're thinking about how can we train this child to join our cult and control galactic politics, right? Like anyway, (laughs) so there's, I think, a very fundamental ethical difference between Qui-Gon's approach to being a Jedi, which would have led – I think to a much better outcome and the, the, the Jedi order, the Jedi council, what they're, how they're operating. But anyway, so even though I think we could say they have, they have a lot of wisdom too. Um, but anyway, so Anakin and Padme fall in love and then Palpatine starts to rear his head in. And what he, what he recognizes is that in the vacuum of Qui-Gon, Anakin needs a father figure. Right? Like, Obi-Wan is more like his older brother. It's not really his father, per se. Right? He needs that father figure. And Palpatine fills that void. And he recognizes Anakin's fear of losing the ones he loves. Right? His mother, Padme. What Qui-Gon would have taught him is that death is tragic. It's terrible. It's horrible. But we have to 
learn how to cope with that in healthy ways. Like, so not to get too dark, I, I just had a friend commit suicide recently. I had my grandfather die, you know, it doesn't, it was actually a while ago now, but it still doesn't feel like it was that long. And I have to learn how to deal with these things in healthy ways. This was ultimately out of my control. There's nothing I could have done. But here's an important question, obviously not for me, but for someone like Anakin. He is tempted by this power that tells him, listen, you can, in fact, save the ones you love from dying. You can. But what it's going to require is that you do very bad things to other people. Now, here's the question. On a moral level, should he do that? I think what Qui-Gon would have guided him to understand is that no, the exploitation of others is always evil. And the will of the force is not evil. It's evil to exploit others to save the ones you love. The ones we love may die, and that's incredibly tragic. But you have to view that in a way that doesn't destroy you at the same time. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think actually what you're touching on is, in my opinion, the best part of the prequel trilogy, which is Anakin's struggle with that dilemma. And really where that all comes to a head is in the third episode, which in my opinion is is the best by far in the prequel trilogy. I would argue it's one of the best by far in the entire history of Star Wars. I mean, if someone wants to tell me that they didn't like episode one, Okay, that's fine. I mean, I liked episode one. I didn't love it, but it did rekindle kind of that love of adventure and space travel and exploration that is so, so synonymous with Star Wars. So I liked episode one. Episode two, I really didn't like. I just felt like it kind of was awkward filler and I didn't quite buy the relationship. But episode three, I really loved. And you described this earlier as um, the, the prequel trilogy being Shakespearean. And that's exactly the way that I would especially describe episode three, because it is a very Shakespearean fall from grace for Anakin. He's a good person fundamentally who tries to do the right thing and to do good things. And he just makes the wrong choice. And again, this ties into what you were talking about, how much of this comes down to the lack of guidance and a, a father figure, a parental figure that he never had, and how much of that was exploited by Palpatine. And all of that kind of really comes to a head in the third movie, which is the reason I like the third one so much personally. So so I think that's totally valid uh, to obviously like you like that one better. My, my favorite is episode one, for instance, but I think each of them does serve a really important puzzle piece in this story, which is that we see the innocence of a child. And we see he has ima- unimaginable potential for good or for evil. Where is he going to go? Do we even take the risk? Qui-Gon says, yes, I am going to take the risk. But then unfortunately, he's struck down before he can guide him. And then we see in episode two, what has happened to Anakin without Qui-Gon's guidance. We see that he has become entitled. I think entitlement is one of the the things that can guide us to exploit others. We feel entitled yep, yep. to things like... You know, Anakin feels, in a sense, entitled to keep the ones he loves from dying. I mean, like, I don't ever want to, like, judge someone's emotions after a loved one has died, obviously, right? But I do think that after the immediate aftermath, right, once we've 
calmed down, right? We, there is a healthy way and an unhealthy way to deal with this, right? Like, so for instance, like, I'm, I'm not going to name the guy's name because I don't want to give this guy free promotion. I was listening to a conservative, a very conservative religious guy talk about like forcibly implementing his religion on like a legal level and like oppressing women and LGBT people. And, and the justification he provides was that his sister was was killed and we need to control society more. Look, dude, that, that is unimaginably horrible. I, I can't even imagine what that feels like. But bro, that doesn't justify you know, the next step in what you were saying, right? Similarly, we see this tendency towards fascism in Anakin in episode two. That's it's such a crucial part of the story, right? When he's talking to Padme. This is, I think the 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 importance of the political element in the prequels the prequels are are a very psychological and political trilogy they they depict how entitlement can lead someone to fascism and fa- and and a big part of that is control wanting to control in a sense the uncontrollable and that makes you do very evil things in pursuit of controlling the uncontrollable right so like Oftentimes, fascists, they will argue for their politics by saying that it's the, the crime, it's it's insane, we've got to stop it. And sometimes the crime, crime can be really bad, right? But they'll oftentimes put in a lot of really nefarious political uh, like policies into things that, you know, they'll sort of like mask it, right? Like, I don't want to get too political, obviously, because I don't want to like alienate people, but like... I, I would hopefully think everyone does. Nobody likes fascism, right? Like that's generally considered pretty bad, right? Um, and like Anakin's sort of temptation towards that, I think it's important that we understand why people are psychologically drawn to fascism. It's because so, right? I'll give you guys a, an example. In in Italy, when fascism first emerged, Benito Mussolini, one of his you know, his slogans was, we will make the trains run on time. The idea is that when you control things, it's more organized, it's more efficient. Um, he, Mussolini, for instance, was uh, very antagonistic towards the mafia, right? The, the criminal elements and the, the fascists, they were, they were very against each other, right? Uh, the Sicilian mafia, for instance, actually helped the, the U.S. invade uh, Italy during World War II, right? So there's this sense in which you have political control, which is imposed through authoritarian measures in order to mitigate the risk associated with some bad outcome. In this case, losing his loved ones, right? And so he's pulled towards this, this darker, darker side of the force, right? This desire to, to control things where the, the wisdom of Qui-Gon, the wisdom of the living force would help him to understand that you can't control everything and your attempts to do so will lead you to doing some really dark things that are going to harm other people. Uh, anyway, so episode three comes around and we see Anakin's fall to the dark side. We see him being him succumbing to that temptation, that, that fear ultimately is the guiding motivation of Anakin Skywalker. Fear is what makes him do what he does. He he is scared. He lost his mother. I mean, he in episode two. Let's 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 not get confused. He fucking commits genocide. Like 
This is a political action, right? So the Tuscans, if you're up to date with Star Wars in the Book of Boba Fett and the Mandalorian, and they've always been depicted this way, but now there more people are seeing this. They are people, right? These are the indigenous people of Tatooine, right? Of course, there we we see them as like violent to uh, other people on Tatooine because their land is being like colonized. You know what I mean? Like they're like they're they're resisting that, right? Anakin, and obviously what they do to Anakin's mother is, is it, it's indefensible. Of course it's indefensible. And Anakin has every right to be angry. And I would say also to like, I'm not, I don't know how he would know who was doing the torturing. So it's tough to like know, like if he could identify who actually killed her, okay, killing them, I wouldn't say is, no, it's okay, whatever. <laughs> like, but like, it's hard, hard. I'm not sure how you would know, but like, Maybe the force could tell him. I don't know. But like killing women and children who clearly had nothing to do with it, especially bro, especially the children. And like he says this to Padme, and Padme's like, no, she's not really that bothered by it. Which is like, yeah, yeah. She really gives him a lot of passes. I mean, I can't imagine my wife letting me get away with a fraction of what Anakin gets away with. <laughs> by the time episode three concludes, he's murdered a room full of children, he's committed genocide. Like, this guy really gets away with a lot. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty well, it's, that's that's his descent into the dark side, right? Like, <laughs> and this is something that we're that is possible within all of us, right? If we don't recognize that fear of, could, could be anything, could be fear of failure, could be fear of embarrassment, could be fear of losing our loved ones, just like Anakin, you know, could be fear of losing money, right? Could, could be anything, right? Like that fear, if it's not controlled, if you don't, rec- if you don't recognize uh, that ultimately, there are healthy and unhealthy ways of dealing with that fear and unhealthy ways of dealing with the fear will oftentimes lead, will oftentimes lead you to doing some really bad things. You can, you can be compelled in that direction. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, there is, um, anyway, so the, 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 there's an element in the living force, which I want to connect to like some like actual real world philosophy, which is this idea by Immanuel Kant, who is the great, a great German philosopher who argued that ultimately a, a tenet of his ethics. That's very important is that each person needs to be understood as an end unto themselves, which is to say that any time that we reduce someone that is an end to themselves into an object, a, a, which is to say a means to an end, we are exploiting them. And this is the base of all evil in human interactions, right? When you turn to the dark side, I think more than anything else, what you're doing is you are letting your fear reduce others to means to your own ends. The wisdom of the living force, as Qui-Gon understands it, is that each and every living thing is connected and is therefore a means, uh, sorry, an end unto itself rather than a means to an end, right? Um, even the Jedi, in some sense, they think about it. They take these two-year-old children. Are they really viewing them as an end unto themselves? Like they're not, how do they know those kids would want to do that? It's such a strange and I would argue like unethical, like way of living with the force, right? Anyway. And so just to sort of finish all this, right? The, 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 the arc of Anakin Skywalker, I think ultimately, the wisdom of Qui-Gon is proven correct when 
the love of Luke Skywalker redeems Anakin Skywalker. And Anakin Skywalker kills Emperor Palpatine and himself, and in doing so, destroys the Sith and brings balance to the Force. And it wasn't Luke Skywalker. He did not defeat the dark side through violence. He defeated the dark side through loving his father and recognizing, just as Qui-Gon did decades before, that there was still good in him. Despite all odds, there was still good in him. And that good ultimately went out, and obviously, like, it's kind of corny, right? But, like, it's this fucking space fantasy soap opera thing, right? Like, <laughs> so it's like, yeah, like, you got to kind of, like, dive into the, the corniness of it, I think. If you want to enjoy it, that's what you got to do. And if you, don't, if you don't want to, if you find it too silly, that's fine. But viewed through this lens, I think there are such deep implications for, like, ethics, politics, psychology, um, you know, human, you know, even like sociology, right? Human interactions, right? It's just so deep. Uh, and like, and um, the sequels came along and ruined it anyway. <laughs> you know what? I wanted to get your opinion on that. But uh, one thing I'll just throw in before we get there. Um, one of the interesting things about the prequels has been kind of their redemption story. Uh, because if, I mean, if you remember when they came out, they were not well received. Although I think that by the time the third one came out, they kind of turned that around. The third one was generally considered to be a good movie by most. I remember Roger Ebert, rest in peace, gave it a really good review. And that then I went to see it and I was really blown away by the third one. Um, but that said, though, there was a lot of negativity around those. And I understand it. Um, but after things like the Clone Wars and um, the continued commitment to developing the prequel lore. I mean, even to this day, right? Shows like The Mandalorian tie into the prequel lore. Uh, there's entire generations now of people who didn't grow up when that hate for the prequels was happening. They grew up watching Clone Wars. And so they have a very different view of the prequels. And the prequels now, I think, are generally looked upon more fondly than they were at the time. And with that said, I mean, I guess we do probably want to put in a spoiler warning here because we're talking about more recent stuff we now have to contend with the trash fire that is the final trilogy um i don't know what you call it i guess it's not really final because presumably more are coming um but the force awakens and beyond and i'd love to get your perspective on that because i definitely have feelings but what do you think of those movies and what their legacy will be especially relating to the prequels and such yeah so i mean like okay first of all let's focus on the prequels because i want to keep this podcast mostly positive i just <laughs> yeah i mean like dude i can i could definitely talk about the prequels like really sorry the sequels really negatively now look there's two ways to look at it you could very plausibly argue that i am the old man of this generation who's like the movies that i saw as a kid were the actual good ones and these new ones are shit (laughs) i i can't argue that right fine you got me (laughs) like um just like the guys who shitted on the prequels right like that's what they were doing no i'm the new out of touch old man um have you ever seen that simpsons meme uh yeah old man yells at cloud i feel that every day that's kind of what what i've evolved into there's that one but the, the one i'm thinking of is where the guy is like am i is it is it me that's oh out of yes touch? no it's the children that are wrong yeah it's the children that are wrong right? <laughs> so i guess like maybe this is a sign just that i'm an old man and i'm like the thing i watched as a kid no that's the good one but i also think there are reasons okay like i think that the sequels first of all george lucas had no involvement with them and i think it's not his vision and so 
it doesn't really cohesively fit into this story, right? If Anakin brought balance to the force, why the fuck is Emperor Palpatine still alive? Yes. Right? Like, what is, it, I, it, no, I, I legitimately want to know why the fuck he's still alive because I'm still not sure. And I've seen all of the new movies. Well, the answer is because Lucasfilm had no overarching plan. They were rewriting the script for The Force Awakens on set. Like, and not just like occasional rewrites. No, they were writing like the bulk of it. Right. So it's like, it was a disaster. It just wasn't well planned. I think so many of the people involved are extremely talented. I pretty much like all of the new actors. I think they did a really good job. I think all of the new actors were fantastic. The issue is just the direction and the writing. It's just, and it's not like the issue is the prequels. They're, they're the bad parts are just like silly, you know, but it has this really deep Shakespearean, sociopolitical, ethical, psychological, philosophical under underpinning. Where's like the sequels? I don't know. Is, is, is that there? I don't know, man. Like I said, maybe I'm just an out of touch old man. If someone, if someone wants to call me that, I won't really argue with them. That's fine. You got me. <laughs> it's just my thoughts. Um, I, I mean, ha- it is possible. It is possible that 20 years from now, you and I will be doing another podcast talking about how actually maybe the final trilogy was better than we remembered. But in terms of how I feel right now, I definitely feel it with you here. Uh, when I went to see The Force Awakens, my first thought was, this is a really well-made, unoffensive, vanilla movie that feels like it was made by a, a focus group, really. Um, it feels like they they wanted to make a Star Wars movie. They didn't really have a vision for a story they wanted to tell, but they knew what a Star Wars movie looked like and sounded like, and so they tried their best to imitate that um with the prequels you can criticize the prequels for a lot of things but there's really no question that they feel cohesive and they feel like star wars movies whereas i i was never emotionally connected to the the third trilogy the, um i just i agree with you that i thought the actors did a fine job the visuals of course and the production were great but just it felt meandering i couldn't relate really to any of the characters it certainly didn't feel probably for the reason you brought up it certainly didn't feel like there was an overarching story or thread it felt actually like after every movie when the new one started it felt like it started in a completely different place with completely new circumstances especially that final movie where suddenly the the guy who was supposed to be the bad guy no actually he's dead now the emperor's back for no reason and just that whole final movie in my opinion was probably the worst Star Wars movie of them all, as far as I'm concerned. At least out of the ones I've seen, I would say it's the worst. Here's my sequel's hot take. The Rise of Skywalker is the only good of any of the sequel movies. And what? Yeah, really? It is widely considered the worst one, but I honestly loved it. I thought it was What did you so, like about I it? I thought it was so good because it's like it's they just gave up. They just, <laughs> they just were like, what dumb shit can we get away with? And like it's like it's so absurd, it's so over the top. It is like like okay, here's the thing. It's like the prequels without good writing. And I, a big part of what I love about the prequels is exactly what a lot of people hate, which is the psychotic batshit elements. Like Dexter, so like Dexter Jetson is one of my favorite characters. That's like the alien um, diner owner that Obi-Wan is friends with. I love Dexter Jetson. Dexter Jetson is one of my favorite characters because he's just like so unbelievably unnecessary. Like, <laughs> like, and like the sequels, 
they're just so exactly what you just described. They're the safest movies ever, right? Except for The Rise of Skywalker. The Rise of Skywalker, they just decided, fuck it. We already got paid. There's no more movies. There's no more movies in this trilogy. Let's just like they just like like my favorite sequel character is Babu Frick. That's the little guy that's like with the mechanics. He's like Babu Frick. Do you know who I'm talking about? I have no recollection of this, which goes to show how little attention I was paying because I literally just saw that movie like a year ago, and I have no recollection of this person. Well, he's he's hilarious, and he's just like he's just so silly. He's so silly and like he should have died like two different times, but he survives and like there's no reason. But it's just like it, it's just funny. Like I think the reason he doesn't die is because kids would be sad if this cute little guy died. So like you can't you can't have that in Star Wars. But anyway, so that's all the more reason to kill him off. These kids need to grow up. No, Jeez. no. <laughs> I love Babu Brick. You can't kill Babu Brick. Like I want the sequels to become. Render not actually what I wish could happen. Okay, this is the last thing I want to say about the sequels, and then I let's go back to the prequels. But, like, okay, yeah, no, I, I will say I almost wish the exact same cast they could just do it over, do a mulligan. Yeah. yeah, I really think they had an extremely good cast, and I think that I like, I really like, okay, my actual like non-joking favorite part of the sequels was actually the first 10 minutes of The Force Awakens before, before they find the Millennium Falcon. That was, it was just like, when they, when they get to the Millennium Falcon, it's like, it just goes downhill from there. But like, it's just become stupid. But like the original parts with the, with Finn meeting Poe and then Ray, I thought that was all good. I liked all of that. But then it goes downhill. And the fact that Ray is on another desert desert planet. That's pretty fucking stupid. I know, Jesus. With the desert planets again, for crying out loud. If there's that many habitable planets in the galaxy, why is everyone going to live on these awful desert planets? I don't understand. Yeah, well, it's because desert planet. The actual reason is because desert effects are cheaper to do than like, a lot of <laughs> other planets. So, yeah. Um, but anyway, so to bring it back to the prequels, like, I feel... Like, people get really upset about, on a deeper level, the original trilogy is much more purely hopeful, and it, it fulfills this mythological narrative that a lot of people want to feel about themselves. They want to feel this sense of overcoming evil and purity of character and everything, but that's not the, the seek, uh, sorry, the prequels are the exact opposite, which is all about the descent into darkness. That's not the hero's journey. It's the opposite of the hero's journey. It's very similar, like I said earlier, to Macbeth or many other Shakespearean tragedies, which is, this is a part of being a person. Like you, as a person, you need to understand how things can go right and how things can go wrong. And I really think that the prequels are a really compelling, fun story of how entitlement and fear can lead someone to fascism. You know, um, I'm sure someone is going to comment this, that I just jacked that take from Ryan Johnson, the guy who directed <laughs> The Last Jedi. You're, you're right. I did. But I also still think it's true at the same time. He didn't explain it the way I did. That was all just those are those are my thoughts. But this this explanation of what I explained, that is a, was a tweet from Ryan Johnson. And I actually hate Ryan Johnson. I think he's 
Did just the Last Jedi is so bad, but that take I really really like. The Last Jedi looked a lot better than it was. It was a very pretty movie to look at, but yeah, I agree with you. It just God that movie droned on forever. Um, but you bring up an interesting point here, which is when I think about it, when I think about the original trilogy. It never really feels like a power fantasy. I mean, despite the fact that Luke Skywalker is ultimately like a telekinetic warrior ninja who has a laser sword, right? It it should feel like a power fantasy, but it never really does. Whereas in the second trilogy, in the prequel trilogy, they really do paint Hayden Christensen kind of as this entitled, like, everything's going for him guy, you know, he's this good-looking guy, he's totally entitled, and there are absolutely scenes where it comes across like, this guy is untouchable, there is like no chance that anyone could take him, he really does, it does feel like he's overpowered, and that kind of makes sense given the trajectory that he's going on and that he's developing on, and that's just an interesting thing that in retrospect, when I think about it, I never felt that way in the original movies. Yeah, so... For sure. I mean, Luke's journey is much more one of he has to earn things a lot more than Anakin, right? Yeah. Like Anakin has a lot more, I think, like natural potential than Luke. Um, I'm not sure who actually canonically has more midi-chlorians, but (laughs) at least superficially, that's how it appears. Yeah. Well, I think that if Anakin were a, um, I guess, a more bog standard Jedi, you know, if he weren't some special chosen one if he didn't look like an underwear model you know if he were just a regular dude who had to climb the ladder i don't know if the story hits as hard right um i think that the fact that he was kind of the the spoiled entitled brat is the thing that led to the fall from grace and made it interesting and kind of ties the story up and and i think what's so important to that is how and this is why i think jake lloyd actually did such a fantastic job in episode one the purity of anakin before this happened to him man it's like i it actually makes me sad when i think about think about that scene when he's leaving tatooine and he's leaving his mother and he he turns and this is so dude there's just so many good details so like he he turns to run to give his mother a hug qui-gon doesn't stop him qui-gon completely respects whatever decision anakin wants to make and i think that so okay so like this is sort of another topic but like I think a lot about my own, how I want to be as a coach, as a jiu-jitsu coach. And I think that such a big part of it is respecting the desires of others. So for instance, like I think sometimes coaches, when they invest a lot into a student, can feel entitled to that student. That's where like creonch culture comes from, right? Yes. Yeah. But ultimately... Your relationship with that student always has to be based on a mutual desire to, you know, continue to have a relationship. And if a student ever decides of their own will, and now, of course, there are reasons, there there are situations where students can be like scumbags. But like, generally speaking, like if a student, let's say you you spend a lot of time on a student and they they want to stop training. They uh, look. We actually did shoehorn jujitsu in somehow. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like they they want to stop training, or they maybe they. Maybe they want to go train in another gym. Who knows? Like, you don't own them. Like, if they want to do that, I think it's very important that you you accept that. Like, I think that's a – I think Qui-Gon is very much not like a cult leader kind of guy, whereas the Jedi Order kind of is. You know what I mean? Like, they, they don't always respect the decisions of others. Like, you know what I mean? Like, okay, just the – you know, like a – 
just a random uh, aside. What Palpatine says about the Jedi, it's not actually wrong. They did try to assassinate the elected political leader of the Republic. That is completely factual. Now, we can argue that they had good cause to do so, and I would agree with you, but he didn't lie there. The Jedi did attempt to assassinate an elected political leader, you know, in a, in a democratic system. So just something interesting to think about. That's a good point. And these are kind of details you don't think about when you're just speeding through the movie. But the, yeah, the, the whole infrastructure of the Jedi is actually really messed up when you think about it. It's a cult that abducts a bunch of children <laughs> and then they train these children to overthrow governments. It's actually really not a good thing when you think about it like that. Yeah. And so like, you know, it, it was always okay up until then because the Sith had not come back. I mean, now that they have, like, like obviously I would support assassinating Emperor Palpatine, right? Like I would have preferred that to be the case, right? Like if they could have assassinated him, that would have been better. But I wonder like what would have been like the next course of action after that? Okay. So like, think about it. Like imagine if this Buddhist monk like murdered Joe Biden and like, he was like, listen, guys, he was possessed by Satan. People would be like, what the fuck? Like, that is essentially what the Jedi were trying to do. Like, what would have the next step been, right? They would have been like, listen, guys, so I know that Emperor Palpatine was, like, widely popular with the, like, electorate because everybody cheered for him at the end of the movie and he served, like, multiple terms, but he was evil and we killed him. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know what happened. Also, I'll just, I'll, I'll comment like, so you said these are the details you don't notice. These are the details you don't notice if you have a life, Steve. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but, so like, so here's another like funny memory that I, that I have. So when I was a little kid, uh, I got caught at school once with a, um, I had like a, a notebook where I was writing like a journal of like my journeys as, uh, as like Anakin Skywalker. And like my gym teacher found this and he was like, who, and they, I don't think they had seen the movie. They're like, Anakin, this is Anakin Skywalker's journal. <laughs> <laughs> like, and I was like, I was so embarrassed and I was like, oh no. Like, <laughs> um, and like, um, but like, so I, anyway, I bring this up just to, you know, ultimately, I think another thing that people forget is that these are kids movies. You know what I mean? Like at the end of the day, like they're kids movies and these, and it, it really struck such an emotional chord with me. And I really think that, you know, this is why I, I, I like jokingly shit on the sequels, but like, I do think that in a sense, I have to kind of like accept that, look, there's probably a little kid that watched those movies the same way I watched the prequels and like who the fuck am I to tell that kid that there's anything wrong with those movies you know what I mean like I can yeah. shit on them till I'm blue in the face but if that kid any like listen man people can shit on the prequels until they're blue in the face and I'll just tell them that I think every single thing they're criticizing is actually good like you know like the terrible effects I think it adds charm. I like it. Uh, the, the terrible stale acting. No, I think it fits with the characters. You know, the, the bizarre dialogue. There's always been bizarre dialogue in Star Wars. And I think it's funny. So it makes me laugh, right? Like every criticism you levy at the movies, I'll just deflect. Like they're uncriticizable to me, right? Um, all, all jokes aside, obviously, I think these are like oftentimes fair criticisms, but I just think that 
I, I oftentimes look at film and art primarily through the lens of like, what is this trying to do? Right. And I think that if you criticize one form of art by the standard of another form of art, you're kind of an idiot. Like, so for instance, like imagine if I watched star Wars and I was like, man, this is, this really isn't as good as the Godfather. It'd be like, dude, um, they're sort of different things, right? Or, or like, you know what I mean? If I listened to Metallica and I was like, yeah, but is if anyone ever said to you, yeah, Metallica's cool, but he's not really as good as Mozart, slap that person, right? Because that person is like a pretentious asshole, right? Metallica and Mozart are different things and you don't need them to be the same thing. So the prequels, the way I look at them is that they are, there's honestly like a really deep like story under the surface but the surface is just ridiculous and you can either like that or dislike that and i won't tell anyone that dislikes it that they're wrong of course that's fine it's your opinion but my opinion is that it's fun as fuck it's super it's super enchanting it's kids can love it adults can love it it clearly has staying power you know what i mean like it's only more popular now. 20 years later, the prequels are only more popular now than they were at the time. And at the time, they it had kind of captured the world's imagination that Star Wars was coming back. That was a huge deal. And now they're more popular than they ever were back then. I think you can gauge how fun a person is by whether they like the prequels. If you don't like the <laughs> if you don't like the prequels, dude, you're you're too uptight, man. Just like, dude, these like just like you got to like, just take them for what they are. Right. Like, and I, and I here, okay, here's another hot take. I think the prequels dramatically changed the trajectory of the film industry in a very positive way. I think the prequels, they gave movies a pass to be psychotic, right? Like now we have the, the I don't, I don't know if we could have had the MCU and like the crazy shit they're doing with like. I don't want. Okay, actually, this is a recent one. I don't want to spoil this one. Don't. I know exactly what you're going to say. Don't say it. I'll get hate mail for the rest of my life. But I know exactly what you're talking about, right? Things that happen in 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 cinematic universes now, not Marvel, even DC. It's fucking preposterous, right? Like a lot of the stuff that happens there, and I. This is one of the criticisms you can levy towards the Marvel stuff is that a lot of the time it feels like they've decided they really want to pay a ton of fan service and they're going to kind of back their way into that. They're going to figure out a way to get to the point where they can give the people the fan service that they want, even if it means that the story winds up being really contorted because of it. And Star Wars arguably does that or did that a lot as well. Um, and that's just part of, I think, what happens when you own a franchise that's that beloved that's been around for that long, right? I mean, eventually you're going to get to the point where you're trying to serve a new audience and the old audience as well and balance that and tie that together. And of course, the the more lore you have, the hard, I mean, Star Wars ex- explicitly had this problem and that's why they had to retcon so much stuff, right? The more lore you have, the harder it is to create new stuff because the old stuff ha- has to be built on top of it. And yeah, Star Wars has done totally insane things for the, I mean, episode nine is a perfect example of this basically that episode is fan service it's like they just said fuck it <laughs> we our attempt to create a new trilogy clearly didn't work but we got this money and we got these actors so we're just going to pay it off with fan service um and i mean that's part of running a successful franchise and not a lot of people are going to love that all the time but it it does give you kind of warm and fuzzies i think when a franchise goes there even if you know the writing is not great or the way they got there is kind of awkward 
Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like, so when I was watching the Rise, the Rise of Skywalker, the entire time I was just thoroughly entertained, like from start to finish, right? Because like I went into that movie expecting a dumpster fire and that's exactly what I got. <laughs> <laughs> and like, and it was, it was just perfect, you know, like, um, Bro, I'm actually starting to – I'm convincing myself to like the sequels now, actually. I'm um, thinking I, I might have to go and do like a nine-movie marathon to actually reassess how I feel about all of these movies in retrospect. The, the one thing I will say about the sequels, though, is I do think that it demeans the the achievement of the characters from the original six. So that that is kind of yes. a bummer to me. Yeah. So like – I think ultimately I will still continue to dislike them. but Yeah, this is the thing that explicitly bugged me is the ep- episode six just felt so final. Like they really did a good job of bookending this whole thing. And then to basically control Zed that for the purpose of making three more movies. I mean, it wasn't required. They could have come up with a really good trilogy that went in a new direction without having to try to revive all of the villains from before. But it just it made it feel like it devalued the the stories in the prior movies. And that, I think, does kind of suck. Yeah, so. So another element to this is that a large part of what made the sequels kind of stale is that they were directed by people who were very clearly trying to not have any association with the prequels. So Mm -hmm. the initial wave of prequel hate was still like, I think, really... Like Disney really feared that, I think. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And Which so- is hilarious because right now, like Clone Wars is a huge thing. The Mandalorian is like right in bed with prequel lore. So it's funny because there was a total swerve in the opposite direction just very recently. Well, they realized, I think, that the prequels are like cinematic masterpieces. <laughs> well, I think a big part of it too is I think they realize there's a whole group of a whole generation of children who grew up loving Clone Wars and loving that lore. And they didn't come into this with the baggage of wanting the prequels to be exactly the same as the original three. And I guess they realized at some point, look, if we want to continue growing our audience, we can't just appeal to people who are still pissy about a 20 year old movie, right? We got to start moving on and go with what people want to see now yeah well yeah but i i I think that initial fear is what so yeah in a sense the reason the sequels were bad is because they didn't understand that the prequels were great so if they had listened to this podcast first we could have (laughs) said the sequels (laughs) well hey i got a question for you while we're talking about all of this what is your recommended viewing order if someone by some miracle has never seen the star wars movies would you start them on the original three or would you start them with the prequels no i would go i always tell people so i've planned this out for when i have kids someday i want them to watch the movies in this order and i want to make sure that they don't know anything about like the story beforehand right they got to go in they got to go in blind so they get like the experience um i would start with episode four episode five and then when you find out Darth Vader is Anakin Skywalker, then you show one, two, three, then you mm-hmm. show six. That makes sense. Yeah. And then you never watch seven, eight, nine, right? Never. They won't even know. Yeah. My, my future children <laughs> will not even know those exist. <laughs> but you do bring up a good point, though, which is that the, the new series, it 
touches heavily on the original three, heavily, to the point where they're bringing back actors who haven't been involved in Star Wars for ages, right? But the they don't those don't exist. Yeah, they they don't touch on the prequels at all, even though those were the foundation of this whole thing. It's like it never existed. But those those new movies are so in bed with the original three. It's almost like time travel, right? It's a kind of a jarring experience. Yeah, and it's. It's because like people shitted on the prequels so hard. It's I actually don't know. I'd actually be super curious to see like stats on this. I there's like a really large or sorry, really loud uh, community of prequel lovers, but I actually don't know if the prequels have I'd be curious to see like if you polled like Star Wars fans, both serious and casual, do you like the prequels? I don't, I'm not really sure what the numbers would be. I, I have no idea. We need to do like a double blind study on the Star Wars prequels. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I just know this. When I post about the prequels, I get a super mixed response. I get some people who shit on them like really aggressively and they people call me dumb. Never like in me. It's always just like sort of silly, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. People are like, you're dumb. The originals are the best. Right. And then some people are like, I think most people think the originals are the best. And that's fine. That's fine. I love the originals. Make no, absolutely no mistake. I really like the originals, especially episode five, The Empire Strikes Back. Like that one is like a a legitimate cinematic masterpiece. Right. But okay. So this is like a, this is relevant, I think, to what we've been talking about. If you don't think those movies have silly stuff, right? Like the the scene where they go into the space slug and they slot and they fly out, <laughs> it's absurd, right? Like it's just so silly, right? Like, but like it's okay because it's it's fucking it's fantasy, right? Like that's yeah, this is a part of it. But I mean, that final movie in the original trilogy, like half of that movie was about teddy bears fighting giant robots. So, I mean, the whole fucking thing is silly. It always has been. And that's actually one of the things that I like about Star Wars is it made it cool and okay for adults to like silly kid stuff, which I think is actually important. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like I so what I think is interesting is that I think a sign of maturity is that you just stop giving a shit what other people care about, whether you like what you think about it. Right. Like obviously not to the degree of like a sociopath. Right. Like, but to like a reasonable degree. Right. So yeah. for instance, like I, I like don't believe in guilty pleasures anymore. So like one of my favorite bands is my chemical romance. Another one of my yeah. <laughs> Did you see my post on this recently? I am fucking right there with you, buddy. I love love shitty 2000s emo music. I live that to this day and I will not allow anyone to tell me it's bad. Dude, I used to listen to My Chemical Romance on the subway heading into Henzo's to get myself hyped. You know, <laughs> I, I, I would listen to like the entire like Black Parade album, right? Like Famous Last Words, etc., like all those songs like that hyped me up. Or like another one is the Backstreet Boys. I actually like the Backstreet Boys. Dude, we play the Backstreet Boys at our gym. This is like a known thing about the gym I train at. When it's rolling time, we don't put on like gangster rapper metal. It's like Backstreet Boys, really, really bad Canadian pop, that kind of stuff. Oh, no. Oh, no. Hey, look, like, if, you can, if you can fight another human being while Backstreet Boys is playing in the background and you don't need like angry, aggressive music to hype to hype yourself up. If you can fight while that's going on in the background, you got a heart of steel, man. That's like, that's how you train lions and warriors. Yeah. Okay. So Deagle, we covered a bunch today here, man. This is a topic that I know you could go on uh, 
for a long time about. Frankly, I probably could too. Um, but before we tie this up, any other broad strokes that we didn't cover regarding the philosophy of the prequels, the defense of the prequels, anything you want to add that we didn't get into yet? Uh, not, not really. I said pretty much all my thoughts, like generally speaking about it. Um, I guess like I'll, I'll end cap this with like, I think like most of the prequel hate um, comes down to like people who they either just like wanted the prequels to be the same thing as the original trilogy, which it's definitely, it's definitely different. Keep in mind, you know, like George Lucas didn't direct episode uh, five or six, right? So the, of the original trilogy, he only directed one of those movies. Whereas with the prequels, he directed all three. So like that, definitely plays a part right and it and it's it is a little bit different than the original trilogy you know tonally um you know there's a greater emphasis on like politics i think like than the original trilogy uh, or at least like overt discussion of politics uh and like and there's also like people who just they just hate on it because they uh they just don't like kind of get what's happening i think like they don't see what's going on and then and there's there could be people of course that just don't particularly enjoy it because they think it's you know that kind of a thing space fantasy sci-fi opera sort of thing is kind of lame but then it's like okay so then you just don't like star wars which is fine like you know but yeah well that's a great point i think when a lot of people bitch about the prequels and they talk about how it's not real star wars i think maybe people are creating their own definitions for what star wars is yeah, I think a lot of people who are hard on the prequels, they're not judging it in a bubble. They're judging it in relation to their favorite movies, which they grew up with, and they wanted these to be the same. Uh, and they're not the same. And I think that now, especially with the prequel generation having grown up and being adults now, they're asking for more of that, which you see in um, LucasArts' content strategy, right? They're, or I guess Disney's content strategy. They're rolling out a lot more prequel stuff. You know, Ewan McGregor and Hayden Christensen are back in action, revived their prequel roles and they've spoken quite extensively about how th- it's been very liberating for them to see a resurgence and a, a flip in terms of the way that people view the prequels because it was really hard on them to make these movies that they thought would make people happy and then to just get relentlessly shit on for decades so it is kind of nice to see a change in the attitude and maybe people rethinking things that they didn't previously enjoy yeah, I think that the fan uh, community around Star Wars is also definitely their view of it has changed a lot. And like, I wonder how much of that has to do with like um, wider movie going sensibilities changing. So, for instance, like if you look at when the prequels came out, like we're talking like the late 90s, right? Like that was the era of like grungy, you know, like the 90s action hero stereotype you know what i mean whereas like uh and everything had to be like realistic and dark and every action hero needed to have like a depressing backstory whereas now we have stuff like spider-man uh no way home no i'm not going to spoil it anyone that hasn't seen it but it's i mean it's genuinely absurd in like the best way (laughs) you know and like people we've come to accept that more and that's kind of like so the prequels were in a sense ahead of their time in that sense like they are like I mean, as a fan of the prequels, I have to admit, they're genuinely absurd movies. Like, there's stuff that happens in them that is 
there's just no way around it. It's very silly. But like at the same time, I prefer. So, okay. So I was watching the Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy recently, and I like those movies. But one thing I actually don't like about those movies is that they're absolutely ridiculous, but they have this pretense <laughs> of being like super serious crime dramas. Dude, it's a guy in a bat costume. Like, like how serious are we trying to make this? You know, like I. Okay, spoilers for, I guess, The Dark Knight Rises, but I remember having this exact moment because you're right. The whole thing about the Nolan trilogy was they were advertised as being this realistic, gritty take on Batman. And okay, sure, I guess if you compare them to the Clooney and Kilmer movies, yes, they were a lot more realistic, but they're still totally insane. Like if you actually write out the plot of Dark Knight Rises in terms of what it happens and you look it over in the moment because the film is so dramatic and bombastic you don't really think about it but when you sit down and actually think about the plot of that movie it's fucking absurd it makes no sense it's laughably crazy but yet it still gets this reputation as being like grounded in reality when it's christian bale dressed as a fucking bat yeah and like there's just so many things in those movies where they are like genuinely like this is like it's almost like a separate podcast but like they're like so silly but they don't acknowledge their inherent silliness and i still like those movies i still enjoy them um i still think they're actually very good but i think that one thing that i really like about the star wars prequels and i think about movies like guardians of the galaxy uh thor ragnarok um a lot of the new avengers movies they kind of recognize their inherent silliness like so my second favorite I think my second, it's actually, I'm not sure which I like more. Another favorite trilogy of mine is the Sam Raimi Spider-Man trilogy, which I think that trilogy is to Spider-Man movies what the prequels are to Star Wars, which is like, it's just absurd fun. And like, I do think, I will say, I think that the difference is, I think the prequels, there's actually a lot more like philosophical depth. I, I don't really think, I haven't really looked at the Raimi films in that way ever, like, they're just kind of like dumb fun, but like that, that's like the prequels to me, they're like dumb fun without being pretentious, but it also has this, you know, uh, core of like philos- interesting philosophical wisdom and like sociopolitics, you know what I mean? Like, and to me, that's like a really incredible achievement that it managed to be fun for kids, but also have really deep underlying meaning without being pretentious. So yeah, I rest my case. <laughs> well, I got to ask, I mean, this is technically supposed to be a jujitsu podcast. At least that's what people tell me. Is there actually anything, maybe this is reaching, but is there actually anything that the Jujutero can take out of the Star Wars prequels from a philosophical standpoint that has a crossover into this gentle art that we practice? Or is that just total bullshit? <laughs> uh, okay. I guess like, okay. I think like if you really stretch it sort of like, okay. So like, the one of like the main philosophical themes i think of the prequels is that the jedi council's emphasis on the cosmic force over the living force led to their inability to sense the presence of the dark side in emperor palpatine and it and and basically as we talked about on the earlier in the podcast like the cosmic force is concerned with like metaphysical existence like the state of material uh, affairs and stuff, right? So they, they want to be able to predict, potentially predict the future. And in doing that, they lose their sense of connectedness with the living force, which is kind of more like, um, it's 
almost like zen, living force would be more like Zen or something, right? It's like living in the moment, so to speak, right? So by not living in the moment, by trying to control everything about the world around them, they were unable to stop the rise of like evil, right? So I guess like if you really want to push it, like that could have some, you know, in your jujitsu, right? If you focus too much on trying to always predict what the other person is going to do rather than just living in the moment, doing what you're going to do. Right. So Marcelo Garcia, uh, in his, one of his, uh, books, he talks about how he used to never study tape. And I'm sure you've heard of some people doing this. Some people study a lot of tape. Some people study no tape. Marcelo used to study no tape because his logic was, and you can think of this as flawed as if, if you want, but it clearly works for him is that his idea was like, okay, his game was his game. And if he thinks about his game, they're going to have to play his game. But if he thinks about their game, he's going to have to play their game. And whose game does he know better, right? That's his logic, right? And that's kind of like living in the moment, right? The living force. That's the philosophy Qui-Gon espoused, which is all about don't try to control external affairs. Don't try to control the guy in front of you. Control your own performance. That's ultimately what you have more control over, right? So Marcelo Garcia is is the jiu-jitsu what Qui-Gon Jinn is the Star Wars. <laughs> awesome. Okay, fuck. If I ever get Marcelo on this podcast, I'm going to have to ask him about this and see what he thinks. He'd probably be like, what the fuck is a prequel? <laughs> no, you definitely have to. You definitely have to. No, I'm sure like... He, he seems like such a nice guy. He'd probably just like, he'd probably just, he'd just probably roll with it. Yeah, for sure. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> Man. Well, okay. If anyone is interested in Star Wars inspired jujitsu philosophy and they want to learn from the, the most educated person in this very niche space, where would they go to find your stuff, man? So the, the best place is just Instagram. It's Robert Deagle, D-E-G-L-E-B-J-J. And then uh, I also have a YouTube channel, but honestly, best place to go to my Instagram and the link is in my bio. So yeah. Awesome. I'll throw a link in the show notes so everyone could just click through if they're interested. Robert, thanks as always so much for coming by. This was a, a fun one. I am really curious to see what the reaction is going to be. Like I told you offline, I have been getting more follow-ups and listener mail about this episode than anything else I've ever done that's jujitsu specific. <laughs> so we will see. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And to anyone out there who has taken the time to sit through and listen to this whole debacle, greatly appreciated too. Would love to get your feedback if you want more stuff like this that's a bit off the beaten path. But thanks again. Really appreciate it, Robert. And of course, to all of the listeners, thanks to you as well. Talk to you guys soon. 